Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 258 and this week's guest is Dr. Sean Cumming. Dr. Sean Cumming is the professor in paediatric exercise science and I'm very excited to release this podcast with Sean. I think it's a must listen for anybody involved in academy football, youth football, anyone dealing with youth players because we talk everything around growth and maturation, what it is, the importance, testing, monitoring. Then we talk about biobanding, so how clubs bioband players into different age groups depending on their growth, their maturation, um, and how that different clubs deal with it. And it was great also to welcome onto the podcast Jordan Tyra. Jordan's been on as a guest a number of times, but he joined me as a co-host on this episode. And it was great to have Jordan on because Jordan's someone that's worked very recently in an academy that used biobanding down at Bournemouth. So he gave, he gave some great insight into how it works in terms of the logistics, the running, made you, some of the challenges that he faced as well. And he also put some great questions questions to Sean as well around this topic. So definitely a must listen and please give it a shout if anyone involved, any coaches involved with youth players, youth athletes you know, or in academy football because I think there's some valuable, really valuable information in this one for anyone working with those players at that age group. Something we also discuss on the podcast is the Futures Programme, which has been taken up by a number of international teams, including Sweden um, and a number of other teams as well. I know the Scottish FA, Sean mentioned, are looking at it as well. And also Belgium. And you look at some of the players that have come from Belgium over the last few years, for a relatively small nation, um, it, it, Sean talks about some of the players that actually have benefited from the Futures programme. So that was a really interesting part of the podcast as well. I'm going to keep the intro very short this week and just say a massive thank you to our sponsors. First of all, The Good Prep. The Good Prep is a meal prep delivery service that provides fresh, ready-to-eat chef-cooked meals straight to your door. They offer meal plans tailored to your personal goals, current activity level and schedule. The Good Prep works closely with elite level athletes and corporates to develop meal solutions that meet the ever-changing demands of performance and training. Their clients include Brighton & Hove Albion, the PGMOL, Commonwealth Teams, Gymshark and many more. Their meals are full of all the nutrients you need to keep you in peak performance so you can achieve every goal you set. Plus you can reclaim your time, eat better, move more and reduce food waste too. Their meal plans are designed to guide you through your journey to a healthier you. Take the guesswork out of healthy eating and discover the power of nutrition at thegoodprep.com and make sure you use code FFF15 for 15% off your first order. Also very proud to have Hytro as one of our podcast sponsors doing some incredible work. I'm sure you've seen over on social media if you're giving them a follow and if you're not, make sure you go and follow Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? For pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before. Whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hytro has created a simple and effective tool that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. Check them out at hytro.com or email teamsales at hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your squad a competitive edge. And also make sure to go and check out our longest serving sponsors doing some incredible work in the world of virtual reality. That is Rezzle. Just go and search Rezzle on social media. Go and check out some of the work they do. They've got people talking about them like Marcus Rashford, Mikel Antonio and a number of other top Premier League players. So go and search at Rezzle over on socials. Show them some love and a big thank you to them for sponsoring the podcast. Let's get into episode 258 with Dr. Sean Cumming and my co-host, Jordan Tyra. Rezzle is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game 
and train like a pro. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzle Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzle, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 258. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today. I can say for the first time, I've got a co-host on the podcast today. That is Mr. Jordan Tyra. Jordan, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. No, about time. This could be be a bit of a trend. So get used to Jordan's face. He he could be joining us on a few others. But um, when I was telling Jordan about who was going to be on the podcast today, he he didn't just request; he insisted that he came on the podcast because I know he's got a lot of questions for this for this guest, and that is Dr. Sean coming. Sean, how are we doing? Very well, thank you, and I hope I've got a lot of answers. So, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> yeah pressure. no pressure, no pressure at all, no pressure. Um, Sean, just kick us off. We always start the podcast in the mm-hmm. same way. That's about you and your background. So, can you give mm-hmm. us a bit of a rundown on yourself and your career so far? Yeah, so I'm a professor of uh, paediatric exercise sciences at the University of Bath. Uh, I've been here at Bath since 2006, uh, doing a lot of work on growth and maturation, not just in the context of sport, but also in relation to exercise behaviours as well. Uh, Prior to there, I was at the University of Washington in Seattle doing a postdoc. And prior to that, I did my PhD at Michigan State University. And it was there where I was really first exposed to the subject of growth and maturation. I'd done a lot of developmental psychology through my undergraduate, but in terms of how children grow and mature and uh, how some are early and some are late, etc. I never really explored that. And I was very fortunate that my boss at that time at the U-Sport Institute in Michigan State was Professor Robert Molina, who's largely considered the expert in this area. So it was a fantastic opportunity to learn from him and uh, also start to look at some of the questions which hadn't been addressed yet in sport because people have been studying growth and maturity in athletes for about three or four decades. But in terms of the actual application of this information, it's only recent that recently that we've really sort of started looking at the applied consequences of it. Brilliant. And then talking about growth and maturation, I don't want to teach people to to suck eggs, but I thought it'd be quite nice to start on a bit of a broad summary of what you mean by it, but also the impact it can have on our practice Mm -hmm. as well, especially for anyone working in academies. So can you start us with that? Yeah, so if we talk about growth and maturity, we often use them interchangeably in conversations, uh, but they are distinct terms. When we're talking about growth, we're talking about changes in body size. It could be changes in stature, changes in mass, but also could be changes in body composition. And for most people, you know, certainly changes in stature will end at adulthood, but our bodies continue to grow and develop otherwise, uh, you know, beyond adulthood, particularly if we look at mass or changes in body composition. Uh, Now, the most common things we'll be looking at in academies in terms of growth would be obviously height, the weight that the child is at a particular time, but also if we're taking serial measures, which we do across the academy system, we can then get growth velocity, which is really useful in terms of understanding whether a child is growing during childhood or maybe when they've entered periods of rapid growth, such as adolescence. So in childhood, for example, children are usually growing about four to five centimetres per year. There's limited disruption at that point, and the majority of this of our developmental investment is in terms of neural development. It's all about the brain and learning and skills at that point of time but all of a sudden we hit puberty and of course we see that increase typically if we're plotting it over a long period of time we'll see hitting a maximum peak of about say a 12 centimetres in terms of growth per year. But when we actually measure much, much more regularly, we can see anywhere up to 20, 25 centimetres per year in terms of rates of growth, because growth can be quite episodic in some ways. We get some rapid periods followed by sustained periods where there might not be a lot of growth. And of course, if you average it out, it gets to about 12 centimetres. But for some kids, it can be very, very rapid. Uh, When we look at maturity, we're talking about progress towards the adult state. So going from conception all the way through to adulthood. So it was a clear start and an end point. Now, as scientists, we typically define it in terms of stage, tempo, or timing. When we talk about stage of maturity, we're talking about, well, where is an athlete in terms of the maturational journey? Are they, say, pre-puberty? Are they in the middle of puberty? Or are they post-puberty? So it's where you are on that stage. In contrast, when we look at things such as timing, it's whether or not a certain event occurs early or not for a child. So we might look at something such as, say, peak height velocity. For some children, that will occur very early. It might be at, say, 10 or 11 years of age. But for other children, maybe 15 or 16 before they hit it. 
And of course, this whole concept of timing is incredibly important because not all children mature at the same age. And so within age groups, you'll get five to six years biological difference between some of the kids, with some maturing early, some maturing late. And that's largely been the focus of most of certainly the early research in sports science. And it was showing that those kids who often mature early have distinct advantages over the kids who are late. And again, timing of maturity, kids got no control over it. It's largely about 60 to 80% genetic and maybe some environmental factors kicking in there as well. And the last one we talk about maturity is maturity tempo, so which is the rate of maturation. So it's how fast a child is maturing. And as I said, certain periods of time like puberty, it might be quite rapid, some of those changes. And of course, some of the work that Eric Vick has shown has actually shown that maturity tempo can actually be quite closely related to injury rates in young boys, particularly in football, where those boys who are maturing more rapidly are more susceptible to certain types of injuries, the growth-related injuries, the apophysial type injuries. So growth is all about changes in size. Maturity is about progress towards the adult state. That's kind of how we define it in science. What a brilliant breakdown. Now I know why we got him on, Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's brilliant, Sean. Now that gives a really, really good insight. And it's obviously something that we're going to go into more detail on but what I wanted to start on is with that in mind obviously mm -hmm. we're dealing with a lot of players that are at different rates of growth like you just mentioned and, mm -hmm. and maturity so for coaches out there listening that have got a group of players all these different players at different points yeah. what would be some of the key advice you give them on handling that group with such a mix mix of mix of level of maturity mm -hmm. and growth yeah, the first step is really awareness. So being educated to know that there are differences out there. And I think most people can think back to their own experiences and know that certain boys matured early, certain boys matured late. And uh, sort of understanding the implications of that, those early maturing boys will naturally be bigger, stronger, faster. They're the kids who kind of go box to box in an under 13 game and just push everybody out of the way. And while that might get them success at that kind of stage and may identify them as being the best athlete, the problem is, is that they will also stop growing earlier too. And so there's limitations in their development if they don't work on the technical and tactical and they just rely on the physical. So certainly being aware of those differences and how the late developer might be technically a fantastic player but may struggle to compete physically. That's the first step is an awareness of those types of differences. Uh, being able to pick out those differences, uh, if you understand what you're looking for and some of the changes that occur during puberty, you can pick out and eyeball a kid and get a pretty good idea of who is an early maturer, who is a late developer. So if you're looking at your, uh, say, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, and you've got one kid who's got big old torso, broadening of the shoulders, you see the elongation of the face, squaring of the jaw, etc. That's the classic signs of going through puberty. Uh, the late developer, they're usually all feet and legs at that point of time because growth in puberty uh, typically it's largely in the torso. They haven't put on that lean mass. They've got the wee round face like a kid at that point in time. And of course, the high squeaky voice. So if you know what you're looking for, you can pretty much eyeball a kid and say, yeah, that kid's early, that kid's on time and that kid is late. But certainly having an awareness of it and the challenges that both the early and late maturer uh, may face and being able to adjust for those, maybe playing that early developer up to get them that extra challenge so they don't just rely on their physicality. For some kids, it might be a case of playing them down. That might be the appropriate challenge for them at that point of time, particularly if they're not getting the touches, not getting the game time or just not being able to physically compete within their own particular age group. So an awareness is certainly the most important thing. Uh, you can actually take measurements on kids if you have heights and weights on kids and if you're taking it on a regular basis, maybe every three or four months or so, we can get information uh, which will tell you who is on time, who's early, who's late, what stages of their development that they're in. Uh, the methods that we use in our research is a method called the Camus Roche method works on percentage of predicted adult stature. Well, uh, Jay Salter uh, has done a really nice uh, job of putting together an Excel sheet which will allow you to put that information in over time and actually track your players and get all that information. And the only key things you need is mum and dad's height for the biological parents, and that can be self-reported if you want, uh, or you can measure them. Uh, and then if you get the players' heights and the players' weights, and you've got the date of birth and date of assessment, you can get all that information quite readily. And I know Des Ryan, who was at Arsenal, who's now working with Satanta College in Ireland and doing some wonderful work with the GAA, has actually implemented a number of, sort of growth and maturity screening programmes across their GAA Gaelic sports programmes. And again, not huge investment of resource there, but still uh, really being able to evidence best practice in terms of measurement and monitoring and application of growth and maturity. You were chatting, or we were chatting before we started recording about some of the players as well that have um, been late maturers. And it's amazing, isn't it, when you start delving into it about some of these players yeah. that could have potentially 
not come into the professional game because they could have been overlooked. Um, so that's the importance of it, really, isn't it? Oh, undoubtedly. I think every club that I work with has got a story of a player that they had on their books that they let go and uh, they felt that they were too small and eventually they've gone on, they've developed. But it does make you wonder how many clubs have lost players that never came back to the system, you know, who chose, okay, well, football wasn't for for them at that point of time. And this was certainly a big push when we started doing our our work with the EPPP and the Growth Maturity Screening Programme, putting it across. Initially, our concern was about losing those late developers, maybe not keeping them in our system and so a lot of work was invested in that particular area to try and identify those talented players uh, but equally so as I said certainly with the work in the bio banding we're also looking at those early developers and realizing that they're actually short in the system too uh, because often yeah we, we invest heavily in them but actually we don't push them or challenge them enough to actually have the skills that are going to be required at the top top level and so with the growth of maturity it's, it's not just about the late developers it's all about those early on time planned late developers and support them as, as effectively as you can i think it's a perfect time to bring jordan in because jordan's been in an academy most recently that's that's experienced this and he's done a lot of work in this area as well so jordan i know you've got something um around biobanding to ask, ask Jordan. yeah no I, this is why i'm so excited to, to hear you was on sean um for the context of, of people listening obviously i was at bournemouth and um at a club and as an academy they're very heavily invested in biobanding um Certainly my predecessor, David Johnson and Ben Bradley, they've been doing a lot of work um, with yourself, Sean. So um, really, really interested. And certainly one of the reasons I joined Bournemouth was because I really, really believe in, in growth and maturation and individualising and biobanding and making things right for the kids. So anyone listening, kind of wondering why I was so excited, this is why. Um, and I've seen firsthand the experiences of, of watching uh, academy players when they're put into biobands excel. Um, and and be faced with new challenges and overcome those challenges and, and just see how you know academy footballers you know it can literally change just by changing um, the the age groups they're in to buyer bands. Um, so the questions I've got, I've got loads of questions by the way, Sean, mm-hmm. but I'll try and keep them short. Those are going to be a real afternoon. But um, yeah, f- firsthand we saw you know coaches fully buy in when they saw when they thought, saw buyer hand buyer banding for the first time. They went, wow, this is a really powerful tool um at Bournemouth we saw you know players and actually parents as well really really buy into it um so last season I'm just going off my experiences when we did our, our one of our final blocks of Bioband and we also put out a questionnaire um to all the players all the parents and kind of asked them their views did they, did they think it was worthwhile would you like to see more of it would you like to do more of it and it was overwhelmingly positive you know parents there was one parent I even remember the answer that said can we actually do kind of a full term school term of Biobanding rather than just weeks so yeah. Um, again, context of listeners, um, clubs are doing weeks worth of buyer banding and then buyer banding fixes at the end. But I will get to a question. Mm-hmm. My question for you, Sean, was really that I, I felt firsthand that everyone in the club who was who was seeing buyer banding for the first time or for had seen it many seasons now could see mm-hmm. its value, believed in the value. Why is there still some clubs that haven't uptaken buyer banding? Do you think? Because that was always our challenge. We could buy a band in-house for the week and we always wanted to finish the weeks when we did our biobanding weeks with a, a fixture against another academy against another club and there were some clubs which you know were always keen mm-hmm. uh, i can uh, you know southampton reading exeter were really keen um qpr did with us as well and there's, there's plenty more arsenal as well mm-hmm. like i say previously des ryan but that we struggled with quite a few you know academies that's hard oh, no, we're not we're not really doing that um and you speak to sports scientists and, and they'd say the same thing and do you think there's a way we can integrate it better? Do you think it's going to need to be, you know, tick boxed? Like you mentioned the EPPP, is it going to require them to say you need to be biobanding now in order to meet category status? How can how can biobanding be uptaken a bit more widespread? Yeah, I think it needs to be voluntary. If the coaches or the club don't see any benefit, then there's no real point pushing it on them because they're probably not going to apply themselves and probably see the benefits. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be something where the clubs have an invested interest in it. When we first started doing it, you know, the programme and the ideas actually came from the clubs. It was uh, James Bunce who was working with the Premier League. He was in conversations with likes of Stoke, Southampton, uh, Norwich. And a number of the clubs had approached him and said, look, could we have some games where we actually group the kids by their biological ages rather than just their chronological ages? And again, the bioban should never be seen as a replacement for age group competition. You know, the late developers do enjoy that struggle. The early yeah. developers do have some benefit in terms of uh, being having the chance to succeed. But it's something that should sit alongside age group competition as part of a diverse game 
programme. I think this is what the Premier League actually do quite well. Uh, when Dean Smith was in charge of the games programme, they had player-led festivals, out-of-balance competitions, power-play futsal, age group, bio-banding. And I think the nice thing about this was that it presented a variety of different learning situations for the kids. Mm -hmm. So they're not just getting the same old, same old age group competition all the time. And I think what would probably help would be if, say, for example, the... Premier League maybe with their games program decided okay there's going to be certain weeks or certain time periods where we allocate to certain types of game formats and it might not be by banding it could be player-led festivals but what would be neat I think would be if the clubs could actually identify what their developmental needs were for say they're under 13s under 12s under 14s and they could actually then match up the different game formats whether it be age group games whether it be bio banding whether it be player-led festivals etc relative to those needs almost like you've got an artificially intelligent kind of games program that basically does a sort of a, a big audit of all of the various clubs and then matches clubs up together who are seeking sort of similar types of learning opportunities for their players. With regards to the resistance, there were definitely some clubs who had no interest in it whatsoever, and that was fine. Uh, what we would often get back from them were things such as the uh, logistical side of things, and that was definitely a challenge for many clubs. The whole idea of organising kids coming in at different days for practices and can cause a little bit of a logistic headache, but it is definitely something that can be overcome. There were also some clubs out there who were kind of, sort of uh, championing the whole kind of talent needs trauma kind of philosophy that, oh, if you were a late developer, you were a good enough and uh, you, you you had to survive anyway this would be good for you in the long term and while yes yeah, some late developers were survive uh, most of the clubs actually don't have any late developers in the system whatsoever so it's hard to sort of benefit from that challenge if you're not even in the system yeah. and on the flip side you can look at the early developers and say actually well those boys aren't getting the challenge that's going to be necessary and often they don't end up meeting their expectations because they haven't been challenged they just rely too much on the physicality and some of the clubs as well would say oh no we can't play play down because that creates stigma and it'll be, it'll be bad for them. They'll get a concern about playing down. And one club in particular, I've had two of their coaches flag that up uh, during FA education sessions. And they said, look, we're losing our best players because the club will not allow us to play play these players down in age group because they're worried it will create social stigma for the kids and he says the problem is as I said we're losing our best players to other teams because often it's those late developers and it was one of the coaches from Tottenham threw up his hand at the same session he says look to the boys in our first team played their entire academy down so we will identify the names of those players and say oh you're on the so-and-so pathway he said you know Southampton could do the same with the Alex Oxley Chamberlain Park pathway or yeah. with Jesse Lingard I think Jesse played two, three age groups down. It was two age groups down, I think he played. Uh, and again, he was still one of the smallest boys. You could identify that. Uh, God, even Messi played down when he first came to Barcelona too. So playing down should not be uh, seen as a barrier to activity. In fact, you know, it should be part of a diverse games programme where you play up and you play down to get different types of challenges at different points and as long as you educate the players that playing down actually isn't a bad thing and this is a good way of exploring new challenges and equally playing up is important too if you can do that and you can educate mums and dads that this is an important thing then it's not seen as, as being quite as bad uh, chatting with Bob Broways recently from the Belgian FA, they've completely taken the word playing up and playing down out of their language. They talk about playing across age groups now because they recognise the up and down suggests good, suggests bad. So they talk about playing across and the different benefits of playing across. And there's no doubts about it. When we do these studies, they both the early and late developers benefit from it. But in terms of those types of clubs, you know, it's got to be something they want to do. You know, there's no point forcing a strategy on a club or anything like that. So I wouldn't put it in as part of policy. It's for those clubs who are forward thinking and see the benefits. And of course, it's often those clubs who are the most successful in terms of producing young players. And eventually what happens is other clubs pick up their ears and go, actually, maybe we should try this. Let, let's give it a go. And if it works for them, fantastic. If it doesn't work for them, they can walk away. They can look at other things. And again, what works for Biobanning International is probably very different from what's going on at Southampton. It's very different from Bournemouth too. So... I see challenges and I recognise those challenges, but I don't see how any of them cannot be overcome with education or good planning. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of um, the education side of things. Um, and the, the Jesse Lingard photo uh, came straight back to my mind. I've given exact those presentations on uh, biobanding growth and maturation, why we're, we're tracking it, why we're monitoring it, why we're using biobanding in the academies. And that that Jesse Lingard photo, I think it's against Roma, uh, the one that sticks sticks in my mind. You know, he is so small and slight in comparison to these Italian kids. And it does put the context there. And like you said, there's so many high profile examples. Um, do you think it there's just, 
Yeah, just to add on the Jesse story, I know that uh, Ferguson, when he was there, because Mandy Johnson was doing all the growth and maturity screening there, and he was at least two to three years biologically younger than his cohort. A number of the Man United players were actually flagged up as being quite late developers. Uh, but uh, Ferguson took him aside and he says, look, you're not going to be playing for Man United until you're 21 years of age because that's how long it's going to take you to grow at this kind of rate. And for some boys, it will be that case. But we see real talent in you. And this is why we are actually playing you down at this point of time, because it's an appropriate challenge for you. And Ferguson talks about this specifically in his book on leadership, about the biggest error they could make in Talent ID was to have a late developing, talented boy just released because they won a big at that point of time to the expense of a big boy. So, yeah, really good example, Jesse, there. Yeah, I, and I think, again, like you say, it does require sometimes that input, doesn't it, from somebody mm-hmm. you know experienced like Sir Alex Ferguson to, to yeah. say, this is this just hold on give give them a bit of time um when you when you talk about to go back to your education side of things do you think because i know certainly bath students and I know there's a lot of students around the country now on sports science degrees where growth and maturation and the importance of it is starting to come in do you think there's something else there for students in terms of when they're going into clubs as sports scientists or strength and conditioning coaches is there a way they can upskill themselves is it something that they need to be doing do should it be widespread as sports scientists now and you know, when they then step into an academy or a club, they're like, this is an important thing. And if we're at a club that we're not doing it, can we look at introducing it or anything like yeah, that? There's there's not many unis who have academics who are really studying growth and maturation. There's probably yeah. a slight increase now. Uh, a place I'd really highlight as being excellent practice is Cardiff Met. You've got uh, John Oliver and you've got Rodri Lloyd doing some fantastic work in the area of uh, child development, long-term athletic development, both incredibly knowledgeable and growth and maturation and certainly at the graduate level some of the best students uh, in this particular area are coming out of their cohort we've obviously been very lucky uh, with the PhD students Megan Hill, David Johnson, Tachel etc who've been working with us at uh, Bath and coming out of applying this work in the real world context Siobhan Mitchell also doing this kind of work in ballet and uh, the Bath certainly undergraduates they get plenty of growth and maturation uh, so they're fairly well versed on the subject and the potential benefits of it but likewise there's probably other universities where they're teaching the subject but telling them that yeah this is a lot of nonsense and it's a terrible thing to do so I guess it <laughs> largely depends on who's teaching you know what their perception on terms of growth maturity by banding is uh, we do see a lot of uh, confusion out there to some extent particularly with the relative age research a lot of academics still can't figure out the difference between relative age and biological maturity i had one recently commenting that uh biobanning was a misplaced solution for the relative age effect and uh i'd have to 100 percent agree with that because it's got absolutely nothing to do with the relative age effect relative age and biological maturity are completely different concepts but this is the problem if you've got a bunch of academics who really don't have much of a background in child development or studying growth and maturity they pick up a concept such as relative age and they just assume older must be more mature. And if we think about that in terms of, say, zero to 18 years, yes, undoubtedly there's going to be a strong correlation. But if we look in a single year age group, the correlation between relative age and maturity is about 0.2, 0.3 at the most. So just because you're, what you call it, quarter one, it doesn't mean you're an early developer. Uh, Luke Shaw is a brilliant example of this. Luke was uh, quarter four, the youngest boy at Southampton in his age group, but also the most mature boy in his age group at the same time. So a really good example of how maturity and relative age aren't always one and the same. But I think UK, uh, the people in the clubs, uh, particularly the clubs that are driving this area, and I particularly focus on likes of uh, Bournemouth, I would say, uh, Southampton, Arsenal, who really had a game in this particular area. United doing a lot of good work in this area as well. There's some incredibly bright practitioners uh, working in those areas who really know the subject matter inside out. And it's those individuals who are really driving the improvements in practice in this area. The scientists, we're kind of trying to catch up with them now so uh, and working with them which has really been quite useful. But I think UK, when it comes to growth and maturation, yeah, we're well ahead of the field and the Premier League academies are definitely uh, ahead of the game in many areas. We used to be behind, but now we're definitely ahead, which is great. I think I think Ben, you'll probably agree. But I think that's really good to hear. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned in other sports as well in terms of um, ballet and things. And you mentioned Des Ryan earlier in the work he's doing with mm-hmm. the GAA. We were in Dublin um, earlier this year and I was speaking to, to Des on this exact topic. Because we know, you know, think of thinking of rugby as well for another example. But GAA, you know, really physical sports. This mm-hmm. is obviously a really, really big topic and something which is incredibly beneficial. Have you seen 
um, you know, other sports such as rugby uh, and the uptake on, you know, biobanding or growth maturation, trying to match age groups for, for biological age. In any if, there ever, if, there, if there ever was a sport that should be considering biobanding, mm-hmm. it should be rugby. Uh, but they seem to be quite resistant towards it. Uh, there are a couple of the smaller nations, Scotland being one of them, who are definitely interested in the concept and are tracking growth and maturation across their academies and their regional development programmes very, very closely and, and doing it very well as well. Some Academies, I would say, down south are assessing growth and maturity, but probably not using the best methods and really not doing that much with it. Uh, with the Scots, I was up there recently with Des uh, for a discussion a workshop on age banding and exploring the kind of topic. And uh, in their under-15s, they had uh, it was about, a sample of about 580 kids. Out of 580 kids, there were only two late developers in the entire sample. That shows you there should have been about 90 on the basis of a normal population. The biggest kid in that age group was about 130 kilograms. Uh, the smallest kid in that same age group was about 38. So you're talking about three to four times size difference, etc. And yeah, wow. rugby is meant to be a game for all shapes and sizes, but 130 is a little bit different from 38. And uh, so there's there's undoubtedly a need for, for sports such as rugby to do a better job in that area. Obviously, New Zealand have done an excellent job with their age and their weight banding. Uh, what they have is they have a system where you've got an age group, but if you are of a smaller size, you can play in an age group, but it's restricted to so kids of a certain size. And the reason being is that the Polynesian and the Maori children will mature in advance of the white kids there as well. So so for those smaller kids, those late developers, you really need that weight-restricted division for them to survive in the system. And they're allowed to continue up to about the ages of 16. And then hopefully by that time, they've grown, they've developed, and they're able to compete against the other kids. But uh, there's been a couple of really interesting studies there that suggested that those kids in the restricted age groups, uh, if it wasn't for those restricted age groups, they would not be playing rugby. Uh, there was a fascinating study too as well came out from an economist uh, and they showed in the New Zealand rugby that those players who were forced to play up because they were particularly big, they did where they were more likely to drop out. But the problem was is that they were only probably about 1%, half a percent of the overall population. The kids who were in the weight-restricted divisions in comparison to the normal age groups, they were actually more likely to stay in. But when you consider that that was about 40% of the kids, well, yeah, actually, the overall net benefit of the programme was really, really beneficial. And, you know, New Zealand have been producing players as a relatively small nation and dominating that game for a long, long period of time. And I think certainly when dealing with that particular population that they have, I think it's undoubtedly a good strategy. You see similar things with Pop Warner, American football, where they have limits on size and which positions you can play as well, but also age banding for playing up and down. So again, uh, those types of contact sports where size is going to be important, it, it, it needs to be taken into account. Uh, the GAA in Ireland with Des and much credit to Des for his work in this area. They've started biobanding in the Hurley. They've started biobanding in the uh, Gaelic football as well. And what's been fascinating, there's some really good videos online about this. And the interview the kids afterwards, they're saying exactly the same as what we found with the boys in the football. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. I just wanted to give a very quick heads up. Sean talks about some of the work that Des Ryan has done at Arsenal and he's currently doing over with Satanta College in Ireland. And he also, in this second part of the podcast, talks about Paddy Roche and the, the amazing work that he's previously done with the Arsenal Academy on um, the boys' side and has now crossed over into the women's game as well. And both practitioners have delivered some brilliant presentations for our online community recently, so you can go and check them out on the community. If you're not already a member... I'd suggest taking up our free month. We have a free 30-day trial available just by going to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and sign yourself up there and it'll give you a free trial so you can go and watch presentations from practitioners like Des, like Pordy and a number of others as well. There's over 100 hours of content on presentations and webinars covering a number of different topics on there now. We've got over 250 practitioners from around the world on the community. And we also, when you become a full member of the community after after that free month, you get access to our members' WhatsApp group as well, where there's always some brilliant discussions going on. So go and check it out. If you're not already a member, go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab and get yourself signed up to a free month today. Here's part two of the podcast with Dr. Sean coming. 
you know, the early developers are having to work more upon technique. There's a better learning experience for them. And those late developers are getting more chance to actually own the game for once and command the game, which is, is, is beneficial. And again, not a replacement for the age group, something that sits alongside it and can help you hopefully identify some of that talent going forward. Brilliant, brilliant information, actually. And I also think with this, and I know Jordan's experienced this, that I think a lot of clubs will see the pattern and it'll, it'll get uptaken a lot more by a lot of clubs, won't it, as, as more examples come out, like you've both mentioned already. I think some of the stuff you mentioned around language, because when, we, when we're hitting these barriers at clubs where there'll be people that disregard it straight away, there's logistic issues and all the rest of it, and the playing up, playing down, it makes sense to me to change that language because for, for a child, I suppose that is quite that can be quite a negative thing, can't it, to, for you to be essentially playing down. So the, the playing across age groups, I think that was one thing that people can definitely take away from it because it just removes that, doesn't it? It removes that. It makes it more about the development. It makes it more about the development of that individual rather than moving up and moving down. Um, I just wanted to highlight because I thought that was a really important point that you made before. Yeah. Just just to add to that, I think Amy Spencer at Southampton's done a fantastic job of actually addressing the psychological aspects of playing up and playing down. And Southampton Bioband, they go into six week phases of biobanding. And what they do is they actually align the sports psychology support for it. So all those early developers, they're taught about failure and how it is to fail, because all of a sudden they're going to be failing and failing big. And they gotta be able to cope with that failure. And it can be challenging if you've never failed before at all. But it's a really necessary skill that you're gonna to have to learn and develop at some point of time. I don't know if any of you saw the Crystal Palace doc documentary but i think it was the first episode where those three boys one was a late developer one was on yeah. time going through the growth spurt the other lad was and he thought he was an ex Mbappe. He, he looked a wee bit like Mbappe as well he's a really really good player but he was getting a wee bit cocky a bit big for his boots and they played him up and boy yeah he struggled in that kind of situation amy uh spencer at uh southampton she would have been educating them on, okay, this is how to deal with failure. And right enough, a couple of, uh, it took a couple of sessions, but the coach kind of jumped in and, and took the boy aside and told them how to deal with it but uh, just aligning the sports psychology support for the early developers and then for the late developers saying, okay, you're going to be the commander of this game. And this is what Southampton call it. They call it command and challenge. The late developer becomes a commander. You've been the weak link in the team. You're the smallest guy. You're probably the one who's least likely to be the, the leader in their age group. All of a sudden, you're the oldest boy. You're going to be the leader. This is how you lead. This is how you communicate. This is how you mentor. And they're pulling stuff from research and education looking at mixed age classrooms where you get exactly this the older kids become the mentor for the younger kids the younger kids who would be early developers are striving to be like the older kids who are late developers and just having that kind of experience uh, of consolidating one's learning through mentoring and teaching but also striving to be like the other kids being pushed a little bit harder it's a fantastic experience for the kids and i think this is why a lot of the clubs uh you know really appreciate it and this is the nice thing as well like when we first did biobanning we just created the bio bands and threw the kids in there we didn't know what was going to happen but the clubs you know, some of the sports psychologists were really really negative about it because they felt we were ignoring psychology we weren't ignoring psychology at all and in fact psychological factors were some of the most important things to come out with it but a lot more progressive forward thinking sports psychologists came along and said no we actually have a really important role here we need to prepare those kids for the new challenges and that's where you know clubs such as Arsenal Southampton have really kind of taken that concept and developed it so much further in fact, Arsenal take a very systematic approach to their biobanding now, a very multidisciplinary group that approaches to it as well. And, uh, yeah, very successful club. It ties really nicely. Sorry, Jordan. No, go on after you. You go. I was just going to say it ties really nicely into an episode we did a couple of uh, well, podcasts we did a couple of episodes with, and that was around psychosocial so support for players and putting them in environments that test them. So a player that's maybe a bit quieter in the age group putting them in more of a leadership role, taking a warm-up or making them captain or something like that. And this this crosses over into that, doesn't it, where if you've got a player that's going to be top of their age group, scoring a lot of goals and not really physically tested, you're putting them in a position that's going to challenge them. It's only going to develop them more. Mm -hmm. Go on, Jordan, what were you going to say? Sorry. That, I'm actually glad you said that because that's exactly what I was going to talk about, the, the, the psych side of things. And that's obviously what we saw at Bournemouth. It's what we saw whenever we play games, regardless. And I think, you know, Sean, I'm sure we'll back this up. But when, when people think we're talking about growth maturation and biobanding, we're trying to, you know, keep the, the later mature players in the system and we're just forgetting about the early matures. But the challenges you actually saw for the early matures, I remember um, we had a game against QPR, a striker who, who was banging goals in in his normal age group for fun. 
suddenly playing against two centre halves who were, were bigger than him, and that was that was not normal for him. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, he was he was had a tough day at the office, but a brilliant, brilliant challenge for him. And he came through it and did really, really well. And I spoke to him because I was, I was watching the games and literally as he walked to the pitch, I spoke to him, how do you find that? I went, oh, that was brilliant. You know, that was, that was brilliant. You know, usually he's, he's scoring hat-tricks every week, you know, yeah. or, or four goals. And this time he's had a real tough day, he managed to score score one in the end, but he loved it. And I mm-hmm. think that's, I think if clubs can, more clubs can see that, and this is where, you know, I, I was trying to allude to earlier, Sean, but I want to know what you think, your opinion of the future of bioband and is it, and you know, growth and maturation, tracking, monitoring, testing, you know, wide widespread. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think it's going to take that sort of thing um for, for those examples to to get to get the word out a bit more? Because down on the south coast, like you say, yeah. it was great for us. We had Southampton just down the down the mm-hmm. coast. We could do um lots of bioband fixtures, tournaments with we had a little triangular with Arsenal and Southampton and Bournemouth involved, mm-hmm. and it was great for us, but um, do you think to get it bigger, we we need more education and more of those examples? I think I think if you can get the examples and the players coming through, and that the clubs who are taking this type of approach are having the most success in terms of translating players up to the top level and identifying those potential late developers that might have been cut from the program, and you see the success of those clubs, then the other clubs start to pick up their ears. And it's it's a case of having those conversations with people as well. You know, finding out. You know, keeping an open mind to things uh, not just saying oh yeah it's a lot of nonsense not actually exploring the whole concept inside out and uh, you know seeing it trying it out and if it doesn't work for your club then that's perfectly fine that's that's okay you move on from it but uh, I think it's a case of it will sell itself in the long term uh, if we look at say for example the futures programs out of Belgium uh, which are more national kind of bio-banded programs uh, the, the sort of a development of the futures programs across a range of different nations now is very much down to the success of the Belgian team. Now you look at Belgium as a country, Belgium is about the same size as Scotland but they're one of the top ranked teams they don't have one of the best professional leagues in soccer, why on earth are Belgium doing so well? One of the reasons they've been had so much success is because of this futures program which is what they did in this program is they identified late on time and early developers they took them together to our national tournaments and they basically bio-banded they had all the late developers over in one pitch they had the on-time kids here and the alleys over there and they could identify those players who had what they call the futures quality so the kid who's never giving up who's got that competitive edge who's working as hard in game one as they are in game four the kid who's got technical skills got tactical awareness the kid who has got uh you know uh sort of creativity learning skills good adaptive learning skills a good problem solver but a kid who's also got physical potential you know they might be a relatively small late developer not fantastic in their age group but when they're with the other late developers they're one of the strongest they're one of the fastest they're one of the most powerful and crikey think what they're going to look like when they actually go through the growth spurt and when you see programs like that develop players such as Dries Mertens, Courtois, De Bruyne and all of a sudden you see Belgium just going from nowhere to being at the top of the FIFA rankings you start to think okay something's going on here in terms of unearthing that talent because for those late developers to survive in the system. They might not be the best player in their age group, but they've got to have something incredible, technical, tactical, or psychologically, just to survive. And eventually that growth will come. And it might not be until 20, 21 years of age, but eventually it will come. And that's when you see those other attributes really start to shine through. Now, Denmark have taken up their futures program. I believe they have four or five futures players now uh, on their national squad. And that's much down to uh, Rasmus Porsche, who's been doing the work there. We work quite closely with Rasmus. And then You've got the Swedes too. So the Swedes have started their uh, bio-banding or their, their futures program. And uh, so uh, Tommy Lundberg there, I think they have about 50% of the current under-21 squad are coming from the futures program. And they've had their first futures program players actually start to go into the uh, national team as well. Uh, the Dutch are looking at it, the Poles, the Czechs, the Irish are looking at it. And I know from my conversations with the projects we're starting with the Scots is that we're starting to look at it as well because if you are a small nation if you make that mess up in that one player it's huge because you don't have that many players to pick from if you're a big nation well you can throw as many eggs against the wall and you'll always be able to field a half decent team but for those small nations they need to be absolutely on the ball when it comes to picking and this is the same thing with Ireland and Scotland and the rugby they have to be absolutely on the ball because we're pulling from a lot less players than in England or in France will be so we need to make those decisions more effectively than them so this is where these types of futures programs can be incredibly beneficial 
And I think that's kind of where the future is going in terms of uh, at the national level with regards to the sport. Uh, with regards to the Premier stuff, I think it will continue to develop. The clubs will develop as, as they find out the, the challenges, the weaknesses, the, the potential benefits of the programme. They'll fine-tune these programmes over time. Uh I think from a research perspective, we're interested in looking at some more of the things such as passing networks and game dynamics and performance in-game to look at how biobanding is changing. I know Will Abbott's done some really nice work down at Brighton, looking at biobanding, finding it's producing a more technical, tactical-oriented game with a lot more shorter passing rather than just kind of classic punt and rush type stuff. Uh, so but I think then you know, I, th I think there's still a lot more work to go on in that particular area. But uh, I think it's here to stay with many of the clubs here in England. They're definitely getting the benefits of it and they're definitely sort of producing some of the talents and it'll only grow from strength to strength i think yeah jordan i want to i want to <coughs> direct this to you um okay. with your recent experiences so when you when you bio banding obviously the players are playing they're going into an age group they're playing with their team but for you jordan mm -hmm. as a perspective recently at a club working with an age group if you've got players we're going to use the term up and down again playing up mm -hmm. and down Yep. How does that impact your work that you're doing away from the pitch in terms of the gym work? Are they still just coming back as a squad? No, so, so yeah, go on, go on. Go on yeah, I think it's mostly for games that they're probably doing that. And uh, as I said, some of the clubs will do their training, uh, but you'll just be doing the same training, but with a, a different type of group, I suspect, with maybe different focuses and objectives. If you look at Arsenal, for example, when they do their biobanding, every player has set a specific goal that they expect them to achieve, and the coach will be aware of that goal, and they will structure that biobanded training session to make sure that each child is getting the opportunity to strive towards that particular goal, and that it would be emphasised. So not much is going to change in that regard. The difficulty is just getting kids in at different days that they're not used to, etc. I think that's probably the biggest challenge uh, I think in terms of taking kids away from training or taking away kids from competition from a biobanded perspective that's maybe more related to the work that David's done for example looking at uh, injury reduction through the growth spurt where we might reduce training load or training we might adapt training content at a certain point of phase of development to reduce the risk of those growth related injuries presenting uh, so that's probably where we would change things in terms of content yeah, I think just following on from that, and you've hit again, hit all the nails on the head. Really, um, I, I was directly you know, following on from David's good work um, with that, and when you saw, saw people with you know servers and Oscars flaring up, it was it was it was easy to identify. But the, the the beauty of it was you're actually kind of trying to highlight them before you know any sort of pain kicked in, and then you were trying to get in there. So from an injury prevention point of view, you know, I think this is essential personally. Um, but I think the point you just said there as well, Sean, in terms of giving challenges to players who are moving across bands, you know, not up and down. Mm -hmm. I think that was a key thing. Um, and where, you know, in my mind, when we sent out the um, the, the questionnaires to all the, the parents, I wanted to include one of the a question I wanted to make sure was in there and quite early on, so they definitely read it, mm -hmm. was is the logistical side of things, aka a different training night, different time of training, mm -hmm. is that a problem for you? And I was expecting, you know, a, a quite a mixed response from that 50-50. And I think we only got about, I want to say less than 10% saying no, it's not a problem. Um, and the rest of the the rest of the responses were overwhelmingly positive, like I said at the start, because they could see the benefits. And I wanted to get the parents' perspective as well, because parents are a massive part of, of academy football, as we know. You know, they're traveling up and down the country every single weekend. Um, and taking their kids to training you know multiple mm -hmm. times a week so it was really interesting that we got you know we wanted to get the parents perspectives on that and mm -hmm. again like i say they they were some of the answers we were getting were, were so were so eye-opening um mm -hmm. and i think like you say that the, those challenge side of things and setting somebody who might not have necessarily been a striver in their group and somebody who's you know really you know taking the bull by the horns all of a sudden when they get put into their bio band and, and they actually have that chance for a bit of leadership, like you said earlier, and, and the challenge gets set for them, we want you to be a bit more vocal on the pitch or whatever. They just feel a bit more comfortable because they're, they're more with their peers, biological peers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the benefits were, were, were there clear to see. Um, I think that just from my point of view, I'm going to shut up in a second. Um, I think the procedures in place that the clubs are starting to put in there, like you said, with Southampton with six week blocks, Bournemouth, we try and do at least one block, um, every review period so that when it came to you know review time retain release decisions we had a chance to look at players in their normal chronological age groups and see if they were you know, doing well or, or struggling a little bit 
but then we also got to see them in a bio-banded setting so we could see actually this could be growth and maturation related issues if you want to call it that that might be affecting performance and things like that yeah so i think it's those procedures that once we get them right things will really really thrive but i just want to final thing for me and then i'll, I'll shut up yeah. i just wanted to hop back to what what you said sean in terms of the national team and linking club to national team because anyone who's you know worked in an academy and had one of the academy players go to the national team mm-hmm. um certainly england i know wales do it ireland do it scotland do it um the, 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 the national setup will send documents through saying can we have their recent loading patterns you know gps numbers if you if mm-hmm. you've got them um any rps have they been away of the travel the injury history all that sort of stuff the communication between club and country is quite strong mm-hmm. so in my mind and the reason i'm asking i'm asking this is that should be quite an easy link and just an, an additional thing in there to say you know we we took his measurements two weeks ago you know and he's 92 and a half percent of his percentage adult height He's what we might class as, you know, red zone player or just coming out of his growth spurt, um, potentially at risk of, you know, Oscar's mm-hmm. disease or anything like flagging up. If that information is also going to the national team, then hopefully that conversation just becomes way more rounded. And we might see England, like you say, actually winning World Cups and mm-hmm. becoming number one in the world ranking. So, um, yeah, that just twigs from my mind. But it'd be interesting to to see, like you said, I'm really hopeful for the future of, of Bioband and things like this. But... Um, I've had conversations with Charlotte Cowie, who's the chief medical officer for the FA on exactly the subject matter. Uh, previously, what was happening is that uh, kids were coming up and they were getting measured in camp and they were largely mm-hmm. reflecting and using the uh, maturity offset method, which is somewhat problematic when you work with under 16s, under 17s, particularly who are early developers, because the error in the method is quite substantial at that point of time. Uh, a number of the clubs were really good in terms of providing the maturity data. Some clubs would not provide that information. So it definitely made them made it made it challenging for them i think in terms of having that info and it's really important to know because you want to know where the kid is in their development so if they are in the middle of a growth spurt if they are growing incredibly rapidly then you probably don't want to overload them because then you're going to send them back to the club injured don't think the club's going to be sending you many future players if that's the case so having that awareness definitely would be of great benefit to them but the big challenge i would say when you look at say under 16s england under 17s england etc those are just big early maturing boys and again if they go up against france they have to play big early maturing boys because france's boys are probably about 18. i remember with uh, Dave Piggott watching, when he was with the FA, watching uh, England under-16s, France under-16s, and he could have been sitting there watching a bunch of 18-year-olds playing, really, when it came down to it. Everybody was an early developer. And then the Brazilian under-16 squad rocked up, and they could have been a bunch of 20-year-olds. You know, they were huge. They were massive. The only kids at that tournament who looked normal were the Norwegians. Uh, again, uh, they were, they, they still, they looked probably about 16, 17 or so. Uh, so you get these big, big selection biases. And a lot of the clubs will talk to me and say, look, you know, the national teams are picking the wrong boys. We've got much, much more talented boys, but often they're on time or they're late developers within our club. And they would love the opportunity for those players to be on, say, a futures team and get that kind of experience so that maybe at 19 or 20, when they eventually grow, they're not just thrown into a national camp. They have actually been on a camp before. They've experienced what tournament football is like and uh, being part of a national kind of setup. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Swedes, the Danes, the Belgians are having so much success with it is because it's an easy transition. These kids have done it before. Uh, also, the national coaches know exactly what these kids are like as well. And they're playing a particular system too. So it, it, it just makes it so much easier to make that kind of transition. So some really smart thinking. And I think something that we, we could definitely improve upon. I guess one of the big challenges is that you've got the Premier League and then you've got the FA and they're not one and the same. And of course, a lot of that information is the propriety of the clubs, owned by the clubs, etc. And you know, if you're passing it on to another organisation, you have to be sure that, you know, no information is going to go about that anybody could find out about anybody else's players. And so that's definitely a concern I could see that the clubs might have. But for the benefit of the overall player, being able to share information, I think, would be an ideal sort of situation. That's what we're striving for with the Scottish FA between the clubs in Scotland and with the Scottish FA is to have a sharing of information uh, so that it would be possible to identify and communicate between the organisations more effectively. Brilliant. Amazing, yeah, really good. John, have you got any other questions? No, because we'll be here for another three hours, so <laughs> I'll shut up now, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that that um, the whole discussion around it, I mean, in terms of talking about the benefits, I mm-hmm. mean, 
I, I don't think you can argue. I think there's, there's like you've used the examples, and again, when we were speaking before, and there's so many examples of players that have benefited from this. Um, I suppose the real life scenarios of some of the challenges that co coaches will come up against is some of the things again that you've mentioned, like the logistics, and I think some clubs just generally just being set in the ways they don't want to change things, don't they? So yeah. I put this out to both of you just to, just to wrap things up a little bit. But if practitioners are at a club and they're thinking this could really benefit us, um, I could see it working. How do they start that? I'll put it to you first, Jordan. How do they start that initial conversation to get things going? I know it can't be just something you click your fingers and you get in place straight away. But just a little bit of advice for practitioners if they're in a scenario where they feel like, the club could be receptive to this. How would you start that process? I think from my experience, and if again, if we're looking at Cat Three Academies where you don't have all the staff and all the you know the infrastructure in place, sometimes the the way we started to try and get the conversation when I was at Notts County and Lincoln as well, places like that, um, was through the injury prevention side of things. And when boys and obviously the boys academy there, so when when they're going through the growth, but and you say, well, if we can identify what's going on with these these boys and their bodies we might save them time on pitch and you know if we can be proactive they're going to have more time on the pitch more development going to get good hopefully going to become a better player and that was the little you know hopefully cracking the door that then you go oh, okay and then from that you can then talk about well actually we could look at maybe playing players across age groups and things like that for better their development and it's 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 the the whole holistic approach i think that you've got to go from it if you go at it you know, straight in like a ball, like a china shop and go, sports science is, is amazing. We're going to solve all your problems. You know what's going to happen. We, we know that as coaches. So it's probably looking at it, like you say, from the psych element, the, the development of the play and the technical tactical elements, but then obviously the physical and the hope for the injury prevention side of things, as well as, as Sean said earlier, you know, boys going through rapid growth are more susceptible to injuries. So let's try and identify when they're going through rapid growth. That makes a lot of sense. So that would be my approach to it, just holistic thinking and being, you know, tact or tactful with who you speak to and how you speak to them, I suppose. I'd add definitely speak to the people who are doing this well. So call mm. up Perry Walters at uh, Arsenal, uh, TJ at Arsenal, for example, Sam Scott, Joe Brookman at Southampton, Ben Bradley. Find out about how they do it. Uh, you'll find that these clubs are incredibly open with regards to, you know, the concept of biobanding and how they go about about doing these practices and um, they're generally happy to share a lot of insights because the more people who are doing this the more opportunity and competition they have in this particular area and you'll get a lot more sense out of those individuals than you will outside of myself because hey, I don't work in a football club I don't know how these things actually operate from a logistical perspective or a practical perspective I can tell you a wee bit about the science behind it but the people in the clubs are the people who will give you a better understanding and probably give, be more much more convincing in terms of being able to talk to the potential benefits or identify some of the challenges of running these types of things, how to do coaching, uh, parent education programs, etc., to make sure that everybody's on board. Uh, the one last thing I think I should probably add as well before I finish too is uh, particularly as a father of two daughters is that uh, the uh, growth and maturity stuff, there's not a lot of stuff going on in the women's game just now and I think that it it is important that we start to do some research in that particular area. Uh, Stacey Emmond up at Leeds Beckett is doing some wonderful work with the FA looking at growth and maturation as it relates to performance and selection in girls' sport. And I think we should encourage more work in that area. But probably the one where I think we've probably got a lot of scope for girls' sport to really benefit is in the ACL, MCL type risk of injury. Uh, if we look at girls in terms of MCL, ACL injuries, that risk only increases significantly in girls at the point of puberty. And it makes absolutely sense because those girls are going through puberty like the boys they're putting on mass but they're not putting on the same levels of strength as the boys are so when they're twisting turning coming down cutting etc there's large forces coming through the body but they're not naturally getting those increases in terms of strength so i think if we can have programs that you know use things such as neuromuscular training to identify exactly when those girls are going through those growth spurts and try to mitigate that difference between gains in mass and gains in strength, then I think hopefully that could potentially play a really important role in terms of reducing the risk because we know this is that certain point that all of a sudden the inflection occurs, you know, prior to puberty, as I said, no difference between boys and girls. And this really underlines the importance of strength training for girls in football. And that's one of the reasons I'm so happy, you know, that Potty Roche, uh, 
probably I, I'd argue he's, he's one of the top S&C guys and he knows his growth and maturation inside out. Certainly one of the top S&C guys in academy football. He's now moved over to the women's programme at Arsenal and I think that'll go a long way because what he was implementing, it's very similar to what David was implementing at uh, Bournemouth in terms of reducing the growth-related injuries at Arsenal. Slightly different way, but a similar concept in terms of identifying those players who are more at risk and adapting the training content and programmes for them. And I think if we can take that kind of approach and apply it to the, the women's sports, and even though they're less resourced, I think there's still potential to have a lot of benefit in those areas, uh, then that can maybe go to a long way in terms of keeping those girls healthy through that point of time. So as I said, they probably need the S&C a lot more than boys at that point, because the boys, you know, they got testosterone on hands, they get the natural mm -hmm. benefits. So uh, definitely, definitely more work needed to be done in the girls' area here, I think, uh, to, to better look at the potential benefits of biobanding. And we have done some biobanding with US soccer girls. They found exactly the same benefits as the boys. It really was quite fascinating. So definitely some opportunity for more research and investment in girls' sport too. Brilliant point to wrap us up, Sean. I really appreciate that. I think that's been fascinating. I know we could talk about this sort of stuff all day, but hopefully the listeners have taken a lot away from that. Um, I know you're a very busy man and you've been flying around to all different places recently speaking, which is, this is the obvious reason why. But if anyone wants to keep up with what you've got going on, if you've got any uh, speaking engagements coming up, where would you direct them? Ooh, uh, Twitter's probably the best place. Uh, so I joined Twitter about two or three years ago after a lot of badgering from uh, my <laughs> colleagues and PhD students. If, if anything, I, I just wanted to sort of promote some of the work that the students were doing and, and some of the work that the clubs were doing, uh, but also to try and sort of, uh, stop some of these ideas that were coming out around the subject matter. There's a lot of misinformation around growth and maturation, particularly from folks studying things such as relative age effects, etc. And when you see a lot of misinformation coming out online and social media relative to the work that you're doing, then naturally you want to be able to nip that into the blood. Uh, so, so yeah, so I've been reasonably active, I would have said, on uh, Twitter since then. I usually update when I'm going off to different places. I'm up at Bassum at the start of October, then I get a jaunt over to Portugal again for uh, mid-October. But uh, yeah, the wife uh, gives us a little bit of a hassle for that. I think she wants to join me in a few of those trips. So I'll have to take it along. I'm not surprised going over to Portugal. That's brilliant. No, Sean, thank you very much. And Jordan, likewise, thank you for your questions. And anyone down on the South Coast, keep an eye out for the Physical Performance Hub coming very soon, Jordan. Yeah, I'll, I won't uh, it <laughs> I'll plug it for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, no, lads, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. I think there's been thank some you. great discussion there. And, uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Cheers. No worries. There was some absolutely brilliant content covered in this episode. So a big thank you to Sean and for Jordan for coming on the podcast. I felt like I could have just sort of sat in the background and taken in the discussions that they were having between the two of them. So I hope you benefited from it as well. Like I said at the start, if you're working in academy football or with youth players, I think this one's a must listen. So please give it a share to anyone who you think will benefit from the podcast and from this episode especially. Um, I really would appreciate it. In terms of takeaways on this one, I think everything around biobanding and the discussions we're having, a lot of it makes sense. I think there's definitely going to be progressions over the next few years. And the fact of... The matter is that when Sean mentioned that it, it it's impacting in a positive way, both early and late developers. So I think a lot of people would probably think that it's just developing, uh, just helping or impacting late developers more, but also early developers because it's, it's giving them challenges that they're not going to be facing within their age group. And I know that's something that Jordan sort of mentioned and some of the circumstances that players had sort of fed back to him that they, they really enjoyed the challenges. So I think that was definitely one of the big takeaways. Also, logistics issues. So I know this is definitely one of the roadblocks or challenges that a lot of clubs will face in terms of training nights and changing that and even locations may, may be from certain clubs and age groups training across different locations. There are definitely going to be challenges that come up. Um, and I understand that not every club is just going to click the fingers and it's going to be in place. But it's definitely worth asking the question and um, I think more clubs are definitely going to take it up over the next few years as well. And one way to do that, what a better way that the lads mentioned some of the players that have benefited from this. 
um, Jesse Lingard, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, a certain Argentinian called Lionel Messi, I think it was. Um, So there's definitely some good examples of players that have benefited from this and this sort of approach. And I think the more we can get from that, and especially the more we can get from that at specific clubs as well, it gives clubs that blueprint of this player's got through to the first team and this was their um, academy journey and this is how they benefited from biobanding. I know that's what the lads were mentioning and uh, I think if you can build that up at your club and there's experiences of that, then it's definitely something that would um, impact a, a coach's decision and, and even parents as well, like Jordan mentioned, they're, part, they're uh, an integral part of the, the academy process as well. And yeah, I think the, the other area to take away from it is the importance of language I know um, when I was in involved in the academy football sort of playing up playing down those sorts of terms like as a child um, especially the younger age groups that don't really understand the benefit they're not really bothered about the benefit they just want to know who they're playing with and the whole playing down can be probably quite a negative thing for them whereas playing across age groups I think was something that that Sean mentioned in this episode but I think it's a really really important factor in terms of that language to use to players and the more you can steer away from the playing up playing down and playing across age groups I think that's definitely gonna um, be a better sell for players and and probably parents and coaches as well so I really enjoyed this one I thought it was it was really good and I hope you did as well and please, like I said before, give it a share with people that you think will benefit. I'm sure there's a lot of people that will benefit from this one. Um, and also, let me know what you thought of our co-host. How did he do? Give him a rating out of 10. So when you're sharing this episode, don't just share your takeaways, which I'd love to hear anyway. Give Jordan a score out of 10. Um, you can go quite harsh. You can you can be quite, quite strict with it. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he'll love this. So yeah, give him a score out of 10. And I'll decide whether we invite him back as a co-host again. I'll leave that up to the listeners and see what you think. But in all honesty, a big, I really appreciate everyone supporting the podcast. We've had some brilliant shares and conversations with people over the last few weeks. And some of the recent episodes have been really enjoyable as well. We've got some really, really cool ones lined up too. Make sure to go and give our sponsors a follow um, over on socials, Rezzel, Hytro and The Good Prep. Show them some love because they really do help with this podcast. And yeah, big thank you again. And I will speak to you again next week for episode 259.